Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have opportunity right now to study your word. We pray that it would not be in vain. We pray instead that by your Holy Spirit we may not forget what we learn here this morning, but you may use it in our lives to help us and to help others around us and to give you honour and glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've returned to our series in John's Gospel, and particularly John chapter 9, and we've looked at this man that Jesus interacts with over a couple of sessions now, a couple of sermons, and we've been looking at this man who Jesus meets begging at the side of the road, and Jesus sees him, and then the disciples had this theological discussion about the man. They weren't interested in the man per se, but as in the man's sin and his parents' sin and whether the man was blind because of a particular sin that was committed by him or the man's parents. But Jesus alleviated the disciples of finding out the truth about this by telling them in verse 3 that neither the man nor his parents sinned but he was born blind in order that the work of God might be displayed in his life and we looked at what that actually means for us. And then we've looked at the way that the man was healed by Jesus. Jesus did display his work in his life by healing the man. He makes some mud, he puts it on the man's eyes, the man is told to go and wash, the man goes and washes and he can see. And we learned last time that this action by Jesus is a wonderful demonstration of his power, but also a metaphor for us. It is an illustration of what Jesus does for us, because Jesus connects his healing with a particular statement that he gives in verse 5. Verse 5, John chapter 9, verse 5, it said, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And this is not a coincidence that he talks about being the light of the world and then opening someone's eyes so that they can actually see light. And so we learned last time that this is an illustration for us of what Jesus has done for us in opening our eyes. And so now we follow this man as he interacts with people after his healing. We see that he is healed and then people notice that a man who was born blind can suddenly see and they're curious as to what has gone on. And we read that in verse 8, that his neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? They're actually curious about what has gone on. It's an unusual thing for anyone's eyes to be open, particularly eyes that have been closed from birth, eyes that haven't been able to see from birth. And so some people actually doubt that he is the man. And we see that in verse 9. Some claim that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. So people are perplexed as to what has happened. And it's such a miraculous thing to have happened that this can't actually be the same guy. And what happens? Well, the man's not going to take it. He's, that he's being denied his very existence. He insists, we see in verse 9, I am the man. And so what happens then? Well, the people want to know, well, how did this happen? If you are that man, how did it happen? And that's what we read in verse 10. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. And what does the man respond with? Well, we read in verse 11, he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. What's his explanation? Well, this is what happened. The man they called Jesus, he made some mud, put it on my eyes, I washed, and now I can see. That's how it happened. This is very curious for the people. 
And so they want to know what do the religious leaders have to say about that. And so that is what happens next. In verse 13 we read, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now this would seem like a good thing. Take him along to the religious leaders. They will be able to give some explanation as to what's going on and they will be very curious as to this work that has been displayed in the man's life and they will have some comment to make. And usually you'd expect religious leaders to be the nice, friendly people, compassionate and kind and gracious. But we see that there's this ominous tone coming through even now as the man is brought to the religious leaders. And we see that in verse 14. John the Apostle, in his record of what happened, he writes in verse 14, Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. The Pharisees are interested in how this happened because it happened on the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath was a day of rest that was instituted by Moses on the Lord's behalf, the Lord gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and they were meant to, the Jews from then on were meant to rest on the Sabbath day and the Pharisees had come up with a whole list of regulations that they used to protect people from working on the Sabbath. And so they would be able to tell you what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. And Jesus has done something on the Sabbath that according to their laws is illegal. He is healed on the Sabbath. Now, you were allowed to heal certain things on the Sabbath, but according to the Pharisees, you weren't allowed to heal anybody unless it was life-threatening. And so if the man is blind, and he's been blind for a while, it's not really life-threatening unless he's going to walk into a pit. Maybe you might want to open his eyes then, but if he's going to kill himself. But generally speaking, he can come back another day and be healed, which is what uh, some of the religious leaders actually tell Jesus at another time. Tell, uh, tell uh, sick people, they come back on another day. You can be healed on other days, not just the Sabbath. And Jesus also, in the way that he has healed the man, has also done something illegal. Because you are not allowed to knead on the Sabbath, like knead dough for bread. And what has Jesus done? How did he heal the man? That's what the Pharisees are interested in. Not so much that the man is healed, but how did the healing take place? And what did Jesus do? He made some mud. What do you have to do if you make mud? You have to knead the saliva that Jesus spat on the ground so that it actually forms some mud with the dirt. You have to knead it into the dirt. And that is illegal. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And that includes making mud with saliva and dirt. And so this man is brought before these Pharisees. They're very interested as to how he was healed. And then we see what the man does in response. The man is not intimidated. What do we see happens? Well, verse 15 reads, Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud in my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. For a second time, the man is telling people how he was healed. And the statement, once again, is exactly the truth as it occurred. The man made mud. He put it on my eyes. I washed, and now I can see. And the Pharisees then uh, have a bit of a discussion which we'll start to look at in later weeks as to what this means about the Lord Jesus. Now what is the relevance for us from this passage today, from the verses that we're looking at in particular, from verses 8 basically down to verse 15? 
Well, last time, as I said before, we saw that this has relevance to us in the way that it is an illustration for how we have had our eyes opened, that we were blind in our sin, then Jesus told us to go and wash, wash in his blood by faith, and once we wash in his blood by faith, which we looked at last time, we then have our eyes opened to the glory of God, that God exists and he is glorious and his gospel is wonderful, that he has sent his son to die in our place and we understand this and we believe it and it is true and we then know we have salvation through Jesus Christ. Then we understand that we are to follow the blind man's example, I think, from the later verses. It's interesting what the man does after that. It is not as though... His life is over, he's happy to die, now his eyes are opened and he disappears into the background. No, he goes and tells people what has happened and people actually notice what has happened to him. And that is the same for us. When you become a Christian, it's not as though your life is over and that's it and you can gladly go into glory. No, you continue to live your life and people actually notice that there's a change in you when you become a Christian. An angry man becomes as gentle as a lamb. A stingy thief is suddenly generous. A liar, a compulsive liar, starts actually telling the truth. A sour puss actually starts to smile and is joyful. A drunk isn't as interested in alcohol and a disobedient child actually starts to do what the parents say. There's a change that happens And people see this change, and they're curious as to what has happened. And the biggest change of all is that someone who is ignorant of God may have been a hater of God, did not like God, did not like Jesus even being mentioned, didn't want to open a Bible, suddenly can't stop reading the Bible, and loves the Lord, and actually says they trust God rather than hate God or are simply disinterested in God. And people are curious about this change. It's something dramatic. It's something that's gone on, and they're curious as to how this has occurred. Just like we would be curious about anything that's dramatic, that's unusual, that happens in somebody's life. I took my kids to see the latest Spider-Man movie, and it's a dramatic thing that happens in the life of Spider-Man. It's always an interesting thing to see. I love to see the Spider-Man tale told. I see each of the movies, no matter that I know the story again and again, as to how this man can suddenly climb walls. It's an amazing thing. And you want to know, how did it happen? And you learn about the radioactive spider, which gives this gift of being able to climb walls. You want to know how something has happened if it is dramatic. And that is the way that people should be responding when we become a Christian. They're curious as to how this happened. And so I think this chapter has great relevance to us, and particularly the verses we're looking at this morning, for teaching us what to do in that situation when people ask us the question, how? How? How did you go from being such a nasty person to such a nice person? And how did you go from being someone who wasn't interested in God to actually worshipping God, to actually loving God, to actually trusting in God. How did this happen? And the man tells us what to do. What did the man do when people asked, how were your eyes opened? He states the simple truth. He states it. He states it for his friends and family. 
for his friends and neighbours that come round, the strangers that are asking how it happened. He says in verse 11, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. He states the simple truth. And then when the Pharisees interview him, he doesn't change his story. No. They ask, how did it happen? Verse 15, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. And that is the way that we should respond when people ask us, how did you become a Christian? How did you go from being such a nasty person to such a nice person? From someone who hated God to someone who loves God. How did it happen? And you might be, oh, I don't really want to answer that question. I really can't explain it all. But the man tells us, what are you supposed to do? You're meant to take the truth. What happened? We should testify that Jesus reached down and opened our eyes. That he commanded us to repent and believe in his death for us. And we did. We repented of our sins and we trusted in Jesus. And for me, it happened when I was reading John's Gospel. I remember being, a, as a child, an early teenager, I was reading John's Gospel. I'd heard the Gospel many times. I grew up in a Christian home. My father was a Baptist minister, and I'd heard the Gospel many times. I actually knew the Gospel. I understood what it meant, but I, I understood that it meant that I would have to start following God and keeping his laws if I trusted in him. And so then one day I was reading John's Gospel, reading the ends of it, chapter 19, speaking about the death of Jesus, the way that the Jews were persecuting him, hurting him, the way the Romans crucified him, the beatings that they gave him, the mockery. And I suddenly understood that he was doing that for me, that that was done for me, that he was dying in my place, that day many years ago and I believed that it was true that it was about me that day and that John 19 was about me as well as Jesus and all those who trust in him that's what happened that day I understood that Jesus died in my place and that's what you should do as well when people ask how you became a Christian you should simply state the truth what happened how did you come to love God? What occurred in your life? And you just explain it just like the man did. He didn't have a big, long explanation. No, he just said, the man made mud, put it on my eyes, told me to go and wash. I went and I washed and now I can see. That's how it happened. That's what we should do. But sadly, there are many reasons why we don't like to simply state the truth as it happened why we feel intimidated to share the good news about Jesus and what he did in our life. What are some of the reasons why people don't like to share their testimony about what Jesus has done? Well, there's reasons that are here in the text that we see that the man faced as well, but overcame them and continued to tell people what happened. What sort of reasons? Well, firstly, we may feel like that we're just a nobody and who will listen to us and who are we to even talk and the man would have felt this. Who was this man? He was a beggar. Who listens to beggars? We don't even find out the man's name. He's just called the man, the man, the man. Maybe, they, maybe sometimes it says the man who was formerly blind. That's all we know about this man. People aren't particularly interested in him. They even talk around him. Did you notice that? They're talking about him but not to him. 
Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, others said, no, he only looks like him. And then he pipes up, but he himself insisted, I am the man. When I read the paper tomorrow, am I going to read quotes from beggars on the streets of Sydney? Or am I going to read quotes from people who are rich and powerful and of great intellect? They're the quotes that we read. They're the people that we listen to in our papers and on our television sets. We don't listen to the voices of beggars on the streets of Sydney. This man, he continues to insist to speak. He wants to tell people what has happened. He's not intimidated. And we should do the same. Sometimes we feel like that we're a nobody. And who will listen to us? And I'm not as clever as the people out there who are atheists or who are Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims. Whatever their belief is, their worldview. I'm not as clever as them. I'm not as powerful as them. I'm not as wealthy as them. And they won't listen to me. And we feel like we shouldn't speak up that we're a nobody. But no, we're somebody, and we've got a testimony to give, that I was a sinner, and now I know that Jesus is my saviour. And we can testify to that truth, even if we feel that we're a nobody. We should learn from this blind man who continues to speak, even though he obviously would have understood that he was a nobody, just like we can learn from children sometimes. Children know what it is to be ignored as nobodies, that they have no voice to give to a conversation. They're shut down very quickly. But some children, they don't care, and they keep on talking. They're persistent. They speak up all the time. They want to let people know that they are there and they have something to contribute to the conversation. That's how we're supposed to be, that little child that keeps on piping up. Yes, 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 I was a sinner, but I'm saved. And yes, people may overlook and roll their eyes. But no, we continue to testify to what God has done. What's another reason that people may feel reluctant to share their testimony and that the man faced so many years ago about his testimony of Jesus opening his eyes? Well, another one is that we feel ridiculous about our testimony. Our testimony sounds ridiculous even to our ears. And the man would have felt this as well. What's his testimony about Jesus' work in his life? Put mud on your eyes and then you wash and you can see? That doesn't sound right. That doesn't make sense. That sounds ridiculous. That's not true. It's got to be something else. But no, the man continues to pipe up and say, no, 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 that's what happened. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's true. And it's the same for us. People look at us and I say, oh, I read John 19 and suddenly understood that Jesus Christ died for me. And I have an atheist friend who says, but that doesn't make sense, that you can just suddenly be reading a part of the Bible and suddenly you understand that Christ died for you. There's got to be some other reason. You've got to use reason and logic here, Joel. There must be something else that has brought you to this point. What is it? What is it? No, it's simply, I was blind and now I can see. I was a sinner and now I know Jesus is my saviour. And all our testimonies to our conversion are ridiculous. Ultimately, they sound ridiculous to everyone because they're miraculous. Every conversion is a miracle. It's not something that's 
brought about by logic and reason and tradition and suddenly you understand, yes, it's true because of all these things. No, every conversion is a complete miracle of the work of the Holy Spirit on your heart, opening your eyes by the power of Jesus Christ to the truth that he is your saviour. And it just sounds ridiculous. I could go around the room and talk to you all and I could be sure that whatever you say about how you became a Christian, there'd be people out there who would say, that sounds ridiculous. You may as well just tell me that you're a completely different person, that you've been abducted by aliens and somebody else has been put in your body and is existing in your place. There's an old movie, The Body Snatchers, um, which I don't know if anyone in the younger generation has seen, but maybe in the older generation has seen, about how people's bodies are changed, uh, that these alien pods take over and you become a different person when you fall asleep. I haven't seen it for many years. I hope that's the right plot line. Uh, but the, that's the kind of idea that people may have about you, that you're a completely different person. It just does not make sense that you could be reading the Bible and suddenly you understand that Jesus is your saviour. You may as well tell me you're abducted by aliens and you're a totally different person, like the people are doing with this man here. It's not him. They keep saying it's not him. He only looks like him. It's not the same man. And people may say that about you. You're not the husband that I married. You're not the wife that I married. You're not my daughter anymore. You're a totally different person, and I cannot understand how it has happened. And that's a ridiculous thing to say, that that's how you became a Christian, because it just does not make sense. And what do you do in that situation? You do what the man did. You just keep on saying it. Yep, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I know I'm a sinner, and I know Jesus is my saviour. And it all happened by whatever it was that the Lord used to lead you to himself. So that's two reasons for you, why you may feel like you shouldn't witness. One is that you're a nobody. Second is that your testimony is ridiculous. What's another reason? Well, the other reason some people don't like to share about their faith, about how they became a Christian, is because they don't know all the answers to the questions that people may ask. As soon as you share that you're a Christian, people are going to come at you with all kinds of questions. And they do that with this man here. They start asking questions and they take him to the Pharisees who start asking him questions. And people keep quiet often because they're intimidated by questions that may come at them. I remember in primary school that there was a, a girl who didn't speak at all. And we thought that there was actually something wrong with her, that she couldn't talk. But no, apparently she had friends who said, yeah, yeah, and sisters that, yeah, yeah, she speaks at phone, home perfectly fine. She used to drive the teachers balmy, that they couldn't get her to answer any question they'd throw at her. She couldn't get her to talk at all. And I feel that it was partly out of fear that she just didn't talk. This is lower primary. I don't know what happened to her later on in life, but she just refused to talk. And I think it was out of fear. She didn't want to be thought dumb by people. It's just easier not to speak, not to answer any questions. And that's how we can feel about our testimony. As soon as we start to share that we're a Christian and how it happened, the questions are going to come at you thick and fast. People are going to say, but where is God now? Just like they said to the man. They said, where is this man, the man called Jesus? Where is he? And the man says, I don't know. He's honest. He admits that he doesn't know everything. But the questions are coming at him and they'll come at you. They'll say, where is God? You claim you believe in him, you trust him, you can see him. What do you mean by see? Where is this God that you claim? Where is the judgment that he promised? Where is heaven? Where is hell? 
All these things that we know that are in the scriptures, where are they? What about evolution? What about suffering? What about the pain that's in the world? How can you believe in a God who allows such suffering in this world? How can you love him when he allows what I've seen in this world to occur? The questions are going to come at you thick and fast as soon as you start sharing that you're a Christian and how it happened. And what might you be tempted to do? Keep quiet. Don't share you're a Christian. Don't share because you know that people will start asking you questions and you won't know the answers and you'll look dumb. But we can learn from the man. What did he do when the questions came? He answered them as best he could, but he also said, I don't know. It hurts our pride to say those three words. Or if you take out the abbreviation, I do not know. But three words, I don't know. They're hard to say. They hurt our pride. But they're good to say. Because they humble us. And we understand we don't know all the answers. And it allows us then to speak about what we do know. There's two hymns that I love at our church that we sing. They're probably my favourites. One is, I cannot tell. Keep saying again and again. I cannot tell, I cannot tell, I cannot tell, I cannot tell. It's, it goes through all the things that we don't know. I cannot tell you why this. I cannot tell you why that. But this I know, but this I know, but this I know, but this I know. It's a declaration that we don't have all the answers here. No, by no means. And even the pastor up the front here, I don't have all the answers. But this I know, that I was a sinner. And now Christ is my saviour. The other hymn is Whittle's hymn, I know whom I have believed. And I love, I'll just read one of the verses from that. We're same principle. I know not when, this is the last verse, I know not when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair. People asking the blind men, where is this Jesus? They ask us, where is this Jesus? And we say, I know not, no, I know not when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair, nor if I'll walk the veil with him or meet him in the air. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I don't know all your questions. I don't know the answers to them all. But this I know. But this I know, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And so we should learn from this man here to say, I don't know, to the questions that we don't know the answer to, and not let the fear of man drive us from sharing our testimony of what we do know and then I'll give you one other reason why people may not want to share their testimony. We've seen that we may not want to share it because we're a nobody. We see that we may not want to share it because it sounds ridiculous in the eyes of people. We may not want to share it because we don't know all the answers to the questions that may come as soon as we uh, share our testimony. Fourth one is we may not want to share our testimony because people may judge our conversion as illegal. The Pharisees were judging the conversion and the, the miracle that happened here as illegal, that Jesus had done something illegal. It should not have occurred on the Sabbath. Therefore, it cannot be from God. It cannot have happened by God. And people will judge our conversion as illegal as well. Now, it may be that it's illegal in terms of their laws. Uh, it's very sad. Last year in Nepal, uh, there was passed a law 
anti-conversion law. It is illegal in Nepal to convert from Hinduism to Christianity. And if that is the case in your country, you're not going to want to share your testimony that you are, you are a sinner and now Christ is a saviour. But in our country, it may not be that there's an anti-conversion law as in Nepal. But there are many people who will tell you that your conversion wasn't a real conversion. And they may be people who aren't saying they're hostile to Jesus Christ, but they say that they're friends of Jesus Christ. And they may be religious authorities. They say, oh no, you can't be converted, you can't be saved because you haven't been baptised, or you haven't joined the right church, or you haven't spoken in tongues, or you haven't started observing the Sabbath, or you haven't stopped drinking, or you haven't started eating only certain foods. And they judge what you have as illegal because you are not keeping their laws as to their understanding as to how someone shows that they are converted and what happened in that person's life. And it may be other Christians, not just religious authorities who do this. It's very easy for Christians to judge other people's conversions by their own conversion. They understand how they became a Christian and they think everybody has to become a Christian that way as well. That there's this long extended period of, of suffering and a burden upon the person and they feel guilty, guilty for their sin for a protracted period, maybe six months. And you can read testimonies like this and they're valid testimonies. Uh, John Bunyan's Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. It goes on and on about the torture that this Wonderful man, uh, Bunyan, once he was converted by God's grace, and he's done so much for the church, but he had this long extended period. And people can think, that's how I became a Christian, so that's how you must become a Christian. And if you didn't experience that, then you're not a Christian. Or was it fear of hell that drove you to Christianity? If it wasn't fear of hell, then you can't be a Christian. Or was it a desire to go to heaven that drove you to Christianity? Was it a love for heaven and the glories that will come that drove you to Christianity. What was it? And if it wasn't like my experience, then it's not a valid experience. Your conversion isn't a real conversion unless it is exactly the same as my conversion. And so we're tempted to not speak about our conversion because it doesn't sound as good as somebody else's. It doesn't sound as dramatic and doesn't go through the process that they went through. And so we keep our mouth shut when we should be simply stating what happened, that I was a sinner and now I'm saved by Jesus Christ. It really did happen. It did happen. And I know it's not the same as yours, but I was blind and now I see. We're like that child that you've, uh, that the dad binds a scarf around to play uh, pin the towel on the donkey. And the dad does his best to try and block out all sight from the little girl's eyes. And she says, I can still see, Daddy. I can still see. He says, you shouldn't be able to. But I can still see. I can see where the donkey is. I'm going to put the towel right on the end of it. We're like that child. People say, you shouldn't be able to see. You say, I can. I can. You say, I shouldn't be able to. But I can. I can see that Jesus is my saviour. That's how we are to be. So here we can learn from this man. There are many reasons why people don't share their testimony. But this man keeps on talking. He keeps on speaking up and sharing what he knows. Not what he doesn't know. Many things he doesn't know. He's been a blind man. He was blind through the conversion experience as well. Through the, sorry, through the miracle that happened. Jesus 
did things to him that he couldn't actually see happening. He doesn't know all the answers, but he does know that he was blind and now he can see. And so there's no good reason for us to keep quiet. We have a testimony to give and we should have a joy in our heart to share that testimony that conquers all the fears that we may have, like the joy this blind man has. You can just see his joy in what has happened to him through Jesus and he can't help but share it, no matter how many reasons he may have to keep quiet. And we should keep on sharing it because you never know. God may use it to bring someone else to himself. God uses witnesses of what God has done in their life to be great evangelists for himself. You may say, oh, I can't do evangelism. I don't know enough. Share what happened for you and share it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And you can't answer all the questions. But you can keep on sharing what you do know. And God can use that to bring people into his kingdom. So do we see ourselves in this blind man? Is it like looking in a mirror as we look at him? Despite being a nobody, do we share our testimony? Despite the fact that it sounds ridiculous, do we share our testimony? Despite the fact that we don't know all the answers, do we share our testimony? Despite the fact that people may judge our conversion as illegal, do we share our testimony? be honest, as I look at this man, and I've studied him this week once more, he puts me to shame. But it doesn't always have to be the case. We can all go from here with a newfound desire to share our testimony again and again with others. Your conversion is real. And you can testify to that work of God better than anyone. No one can take it off you. If you know it's true, you can continue to witness to others. There's only one good reason for not sharing your testimony. And that is if you haven't actually had your eyes opened to who Jesus is. You're not actually converted. If you're reluctant to share a witness about Jesus' work in your life, is it because you're not actually converted? You've never been changed. You haven't had your eyes opened to the truth. And so, of course, there's no joy to tell others about what God has done because God hasn't done anything in your life. He hasn't given you a new heart that beats for his glory. If that is you, realise where you're at. That you are destined to one day blindly walk off a cliff into hell and be punished for all eternity. I encourage you to keep on looking at the scriptures. Keep on listening to the word preached. Keep on asking people about how they became a Christian so that you too can share in the joy that we know, the joy that we know of Jesus Christ and his salvation that he has brought for those who trust in him. Let's come before God now in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for opening our eyes to your glory. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for not testifying more to your powerful work. Lord, we ask that you would help us to not be afraid, but boldly declare how you saved us. And Lord, we ask that you would use our testimony to bring others to yourself, including people in this very room. And we pray this in your name. Amen.